You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me talk about High Sierra showerheads. I am such a big fan of them for their water efficiency, for the powerful spray they provide, their solid metal construction, no plastic parts involved, and how they're made in the USA. But there are some other great recommendations on High Sierra Showerheads. Let me share these with you. They are named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. They are named Best Showerhead by CNET. High Sierra Showerheads also gets named Best Low Flow Showerhead by Wirecutter, Treehugger, and CNN Underscored. You can also look on Amazon and see that they get tons of high-star reviews from all the satisfied customers. You can get 20% off using promo code LOOP20 at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis talking with George McGraw. He is CEO and founder of Dig Deep. George, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, I've been a longtime admirer of your organization. You guys do incredible work, so mission-driven, out there taking on tough challenges, getting water to people, sanitation to people. So glad to have a chance to talk to you. Um, how Getting the water to the people. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Getting the water to the people. Um, how did you get started on this journey? You know, um, people often ask, did did you choose water or did water choose you? Um, how how did how, how did you, how did you get into this whole lane? You know, I think uh, I think water chose me in this particular instance. Um, I. Uh, I've always been fascinated by water. I was like one of those kids where your mom would take you to the zoo and she'd go get the tickets and she'd turn around and I'd be like strip naked playing in the fountain at the entrance. <laughs> um, uh, but like, you know, many Americans, um, you know, I, I came from a background with a, a certain amount of privilege. Like I just didn't understand that there were people in other parts of the world that were struggling every day without any access to water. Um, and when I learned that in high school and college, I was so taken aback that I decided to focus on it. Um, I studied human rights law. I focused on water and sanitation access. Um, but still, in all of that work, I didn't realize that this was happening in my own backyard, in my own country. I thought if you wanted to work in water, if you wanted to make a difference, you know, study hard, work hard, and then fly to a different country, you know, fly to sub-Saharan Africa or to Southeast Asia and make a difference. Um, and it wasn't until several years into doing our work, even at Dig Deep, um, that we got a call from a donor named Karen who said, you know, I have 50 bucks and I want you to spend it on the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. And I was like, you must be crazy. Nobody in the U.S. needs water. Everybody here has it. Um, and that was a beginning of a, of a journey for me and for the org um, in understanding that there are actually millions of people here in the richest country on earth who wake up every day just like, you know, some of my friends and colleagues in, in other countries and, and think like, where am I going to get enough water today to survive and maybe spend time on foot or by car or on horseback collecting water that is um, at times clean, which is wonderful, but at times, you know, dirty and is going to make them and their families sick. Um, and that's just, you know, that shouldn't be happening in the U.S. Yeah. I, I, it, I think there's so many people in the U.S. that don't realize uh, that there's so many people in the U.S. without 
clean water, without running water, without sanitation. I mean, when you're talking about a couple million, right? I think 2.2 million is even the number you all have on your your site. Um, There's a lot of education and awareness to do around this issue for sure. Um, there really is. And I think like, I think if we're going to do it well, we have to empower those communities to tell their own stories because the reason that the reason that most Americans don't know about this is because these communities, you know, many of them were deliberately marginalized from the beginning. Think places like native reservations. Um, and a lot of them didn't receive the same investments or attention that the rest of the country got when we started building infrastructure, even with these massive federal programs like the new deal. Um, and so today, you know, they're in many cases, you know, struggling to eke out an existence, at least around water and sanitation access. Like you said, without a lot of people knowing this is even happening, sometimes right in their backyard, sometimes in the same zip code or, you know, in the same state. Um, I think it's so funny. I have these conversations with organizations, global wash organizations, you know, who, who provide water and sanitation access to communities around the world. And I'll often, I'll often bring data to that meeting and say, like, did you know that there are these, these counties, these towns, and you're in the state where you're, you know, headquartering all this work in the U.S. that don't have access to water? And, um, what can we do about it to solve it together? So I think you're right. Awareness is the first step, but it's, it's getting, um, it's getting easier. It's getting some attention lately. Well, I, I threw out that 2.2 million in the U S we've said without safe water, running water sanitation, could you do a little better job describing the, the water challenge here in the U S and just, you know, as, as you see it through your eyes, as you've learned about from all these years of working on it. Happily. So you're absolutely right. It's it's at least 2.2 million by the last most accurate count we had, um, but that count isn't super accurate. You know that's using census data um, from the American uh, Community and American Housing Survey, and that data, you know these these folks without access to water and sanitation, they live in all 50 states. Um, but we know that they live inside populations that are traditionally you know hard to count populations, meaning census counts tend to well, census tends to undercount these communities. So the number is likely much higher. Um, and that doesn't count the 44 million more um, who maybe have access to running water, a, a working sink, a working shower, a flush toilet. Um, but the water coming out of their tap isn't safe to drink, doesn't meet basic EPA standards. So um, that's really the human face of this problem. At least 2.2 million people all over the country who wake up every day and have to collect water outside their home because they don't even have basic plumbing. And 44 million more who maybe have basic plumbing but can't trust it to be safe. Mm. You, you know, you mentioned these communities. Uh, could you give some examples of of kind of where this, these problems may be more prevalent? Those communities you're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, our work started um, with dig deep here in the U.S. on the Navajo Nation, which is the country's largest reservation. Indigenous folks are 19 times more likely than white families in the U.S. not to have running water. Um, there's definitely like a, a racial justice aspect to this work. Black and Latino families are twice as likely as white families not to have running water. Um, so indigenous nations are are one big, um, the largest concentration is in Alaska uh, with Alaskan natives. Um, second largest is down in the Southwest on the Navajo Nation and in other reservations across the country. Um, other hotspots where we work um, or have partners doing work um, would be along the U.S.-Mexico border, especially in Texas, in what are called colonias or irregular communities where people have mostly hand-built their dwellings over the last few generations. Um, we see pockets of what we call water poverty in the Deep South, in rural counties of Mississippi and Alabama, especially where people um, can't flush their toilets. Um, we see it in some peri-urban areas in outside of San Francisco, certainly homeless populations. Mm-hmm. We see that in the California Central Valley, in Puerto Rico, um, 
in Appalachia, where Dig Deep has the Appalachia Water Project. Um, so really, like I said, all 50 states, certainly there are bigger concentrations of populations, which are like the ones I just mentioned. Um, this is something that the amount of Americans are facing or will face soon um, as more and more infrastructure falls offline because of the lack of investment we've made over the last 100 years. Yeah, that infrastructure is crumbling around us. Um, one thing when I was when I was looking at your site, I thought this was interesting is you you say you're not a water charity. Could you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I, we're a human rights organization. Like I, I really firmly believe that access to water and sanitation is a basic human right. And so it's not just a, a nice thing to have, you know, that a, a nice organization might come along and help you get. This is a human rights issue. It's a justice issue. Every American deserves access to running water and sanitation. And we've made massive investments to make that real for some communities, while at the same time ignoring others. Um, and those communities tend to be rural, they tend to be low income, they tend to be communities of color. So you know, writing this wrong is not is not a matter of just, you know, coming up with a technical solution or doing a nice thing for somebody. It's not charity. It's it's a human rights issue. Mm. I love that. Love that. We've been hearing like this human right uh, more in the U.S., I think. You know, that's that's been talked about with water internationally for a long time, like water is a human right. But it's really been creeping into the conversation in the U.S. more. Um, I think a lot of organizations like yours and others are are putting that out there and kind of putting that flag in the sand, right? And being like, hey, this is this is a human right issue here. So that's great. You know, and we, we get some folks that balk at that and they're like, well, you know, mm. water is a public good. It's something you have to pay for. How can it be a human right? Well, I mean, you know, many things protected as human rights involve you paying for them. So that's, that's not a really big issue. But to those folks who challenge me on that, I say like, you know, <laughs> you should be on board with us defending this as a human right now, because there will be a time in the future where you too will be impacted by this because of things like climate change and um, because of the way, you know, money flows. And, you know, it, it is likely that many, many more tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of Americans will face water scarcity in the future. And um, I think it's really important now to get clear on the fact that water and sanitation is a basic human right and to protect it that way for folks. Um, so, you know, if, if hearing that to any of your listeners gives them a little pause, um, I encourage them to like, you know, stop for a minute and think what their life would be like even just today if they couldn't go over to the tap and turn it on and get cheap, clean, abundant water. Mm. Um, that really is the thing that makes our days possible. You know, having water is the thing that allows you to go to school and pursue an education. It allows you to keep a job. It allows you to stay healthy, certainly to keep your hands clean and to keep your loved ones safe during a pandemic. Um, it's even the thing that allows you just to have time to play with your kids. You know, if you, if you don't have running water at home, you spend all your time trying to collect it from outside the house or dealing with you know, the indignity of it, the disease that comes with it. Um, and uh, yeah, no one, no one, especially in the United States should have to face that reality on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, you said, you know, people should think about maybe they'll face that one day in some way. Look at the Colorado River Basin. You're, you, you're in California, you know, like it's getting pretty dire and there's going to be cutbacks. But what happens with those water supplies in 10 years, 20 years with those huge populations out there. Who, who knows what that situation is going to get like, you know, for people. So I'll have to watch that. Um, let's get a little more technical maybe, or dig into things a bit. Um, you're, <laughs> you have like a, a kind of a four step approach, if you will, to dealing with these issues to kind of taking on projects. Could you outline that for me? Yeah. The, the heart of our work are community led water access projects, which we call our place-based work. And that's the stuff that people know us for the most. That's the, 
Those are the projects like the Navajo Water Project, which installs um, off-grid systems in remote Navajo homes that are filled by truck by community members. And so those community members get the same hot and cold running water that you and I get through water lines, but through a system that their community owns and manages and, and works there where, where water lines aren't possible. Um, other work we do in that in that pillar, we call them our four pillars, um, would be like the Appalachia Water Project, which will bring hot and cold running water lines to 150 families in Appalachia this year alone in West Virginia. Um, we do work along the Texas-Mexico uh, border in the Colonias, um, and we're expanding that work now into places like Alabama. Um, that That's really like the, the beating heart of our work. You know, that, that's, that's the work that that means so much to us, that drives us. I mean, 40, almost 40% of our staff here at Dig Deep have lived or currently live without running water at home. So this is like deeply personal work for us. Um, but one little organization like us, you know, we're not going to be able to solve this problem for the 2.2 million Americans um, by ourselves, certainly not um, in, a, in a short amount of time. And this is really urgently needed. So we have three other pillars of our work that are aimed at solving that problem more quickly. The first is research or, you know, evidence-based collection. So we we do studies like the one you mentioned earlier that identify that there are 2.2 million Americans without access to running water. Um, but we're also doing studies on, say, the economic impact of this work. If we give water to somebody, if we spend a dollar on that work, how many dollars do we get back in education and job creation and you know, life expectancy. We do research on new technologies, you know, for places where traditional water and sanitation infrastructure won't work. Like what are the next steps to get people access? What are those off-grid solutions? What are those solar powered solutions? What are those new inventions that we can bring to market? So community-based work, research, and then we do strategic communications and sector building work. The communications work is really storytelling, like you mentioned, raising the visibility of this issue by empowering communities to tell their own stories um if any of your if any of your listeners out there are visual people like i think we do beautiful storytelling work at dig deep and you can check out our videos um on our youtube page or on our website um and the work that i am really leading is um work to build a domestic wash sector um that our fourth pillar i think you know we've been solving water and sanitation challenges um, with some degree of success for people in other countries for more than 60 years now. And we've invested hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars in doing that work abroad. And it's really important work. Um, and one of the things we've learned throughout that process is that by creating mechanisms for coordination, we can achieve more, more quickly, and the quality of that work is going to be better. So if you work in the global water community in, say, like North Africa, there's going to be a wash cluster made up of government agencies and activists and community representatives and organizations on the ground and funders. And they'll come together at regular intervals and say, okay, like we want to cut in half the number of people defecating in the open in this area in the next 15 years. And then they'll all say, okay, like I got this piece and I've got this piece and I'm going to install this technology and I'm going to fund this project. And they'll come together and they'll share data and they'll drive that goal. You know, they'll, they'll drive that down to zero. Uh, we don't have a similar sector in the U.S. that's really representative of and responsible for um, these outcomes on the ground. We leave that all to the federal government. And right now, mm. the federal government isn't keeping up their end of the bargain. I think I really firmly believe that we need a sector to keep government motivated, to keep communities front and center, um, to experiment um, and you know push the envelope and show that things like the Navajo Water Project or the Appalachia Water Project are possible. Um, and so that that involves, you know, helping 
organizations, companies, funders who may not even see themselves as part of this sector right now imagine um, imagine their work in a new way and build connections between them so that we can start to coordinate. Well, on that note, you all just recently put together kind of the first ever database of WASH organizations in the U.S., right? What's That's obviously a big step in this direction. Uh, could you talk about putting that database together and, and where that might go to? What's What's happening next? Yeah, gladly. I think you know, when we set out to do this work about a year ago, we thought, okay, we're going to do the work to identify who, if there were a wash sector in the U.S., who would be in it, you know, start to draw some boundaries along that. Like the, the primary thing we were trying to identify are who are the organizations, community-based groups, funders, government agencies serving the people that live in that water gap, those at least 2.2 million Americans. And they may be serving them with you know, communication support or technical assistance or investment or, you know, engineering services or any number of approaches. Um, and so we set out to, to, to figure out who would be in that wash sector. And we were, I think, really pleasantly surprised over the course of a year to identify 150 organizations or what we call contributors that we could put in this database. And the hope is that by publishing really rich data on who these folks are, you know, who they are, what the contact information is inside of them, what the organization focuses on, where they do work, what kinds of technologies and approaches they leverage, who else they work with, are they parts of other coalitions or working groups. By publishing all of that open access um, and by keeping that data really rich and up to date, we're hoping that we can create new linkages in that WASH community so that those organizations can can pick up work and, and work together. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's terrific. I mean, wash, like you said, it's not even it's an international term, really, right? That's been used around the globe and not used here in the states. So, I, I really look forward to seeing what what comes out of that this uh, database and where that will lead. Um, you know, Me you too. mentioned you mentioned the community focus, really. You know, on the ground, uh, in these places, working with people. A little side note. Um, I think that's why there's so many beautiful photos and videos on your website. People smiling you know, at the outcomes of these projects. Uh, it's, if that's the real world, love that. But I want to talk about a couple that you've mentioned, uh, Navajo Nation, Appalachia, uh, and then a, a school. Um, so Navajo Nation, um, I did uh, talk with Emma Robbins on the podcast a year and a half ago or so. Terrific. What's what's the latest um, that's, that's going on? I know it's been, COVID was really tough uh, in Navajo Nation uh, because also the lack of, yeah. of water services. Um, but yeah, just what's going on now? How, how's progress going? What's, what's happening? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Navajo got hit probably worse than anywhere else in the country in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, um, per capita by COVID. And a lot of that is because 30% of the population doesn't have a sink or a toilet at home. You know, they couldn't stay home and stay safe. They couldn't keep their hands clean. They were constantly forced to break social isolation to collect water, often at, you know, grocery stores or gas stations, places they'd be in touch with other folks. And you can imagine, too, that if you've grown up without access to, you know, basic tools for public health, like running water, you're also probably facing some chronic health issues um, that might make you more susceptible to disease. Um, so that's all to say that COVID, despite some incredibly valiant and honestly life-saving efforts by Navajo Nation, by public health officials there, by other nonprofits and community groups, it really ripped through the reservation. Um, and we lost a lot of clients and good friends. And, um, you know, thinking about it now, 
is, is even now is, is really tough. I think um, what we've focused on on the Navajo Water Project that you mentioned my colleague Emma runs um, has been emergency COVID relief for the last 18 months. You know, in the very first days of the pandemic, we mobilized to get almost 2 million pounds of bottled water out to about 30,000 people so that they could stay home for those initial weeks where we didn't know what was going on. And we quickly followed that up with a project to bring temporary 275-gallon water storage tanks to more than 1,400, I think almost 1,500 homes that we've kept with clean drinking water through our network of water trucks through the course of the entire pandemic so that people, again, could stay home and stay safe. Um, Just now, we're sort of turning our attention back to more permanent work, hot and cold running water and solar power in folks' houses. Um, we had to push pause on that, A, because it was unsafe to enter people's houses, you know, unsafe for them, unsafe for our staff. Um, all construction ceased on Navajo. Um, but also because you know those projects take time, and we were trying to serve as many people as possible with clean water so that they could stay home. And I think you know, we were part of a, a larger collective effort called the Water Access Coordination Group on Navajo that's been tremendously successful. And there have been some silver linings, like increased coordination and data sharing and new relationships from that work. But by God, like, I wish we didn't have to go through what we've been through to get there. Um, yeah. And, and it's tough. I, I think like the legacy of this, of this pandemic, um, you know, will be felt for a long time. And I'm hoping that the attention that the pandemic brought to some of these water and sanitation challenges will also be with us for a long time. But mm. yeah, it's been yeah. rough. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, Silver linings are tough, right, to talk about because that means something was was not good. But there was some pretty high profile coverage of the water situation on Navajo Nation. At least that awareness was raised, right? Um, yeah. Uh, another community, Appalachia. Um, I'm really interested in. I want to do some follow up podcasts and and dig deep into the situation with water there. Um, I think again, that's a lot of those people and communities are forgotten. There's, there's not an awareness. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about the challenges, why, why there's a lack of, of water in Appalachia, but then also some of the positives, some of these, some of these projects and solutions and success stories. Cause I like to talk about that stuff too. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, me too. That's the best part. Um, Appalachia could not be more different from Navajo, um, both in terms of how, ex- how people are experiencing this challenge, but also how it was created. So if on Navajo, you have a place where infrastructure was never adequately invested in in the first place, you know, that was kind of passed over, especially by federal investment. In Appalachia, you have a used to be adequate infrastructure for some, if not most folks, um, but it was private infrastructure that was maintained by Um, energy companies, mostly mining companies in these coal towns. They were called coal camp systems. And as the economy there shifted over the last couple generations and the coal companies left, not only did they leave behind um, in their wake, you know, a lot of contamination that's hurt some groundwater sources and some, you know, publicly available drinking water sources, but they also left these coal camp systems without any sort of maintenance and they started to fall offline. And people who had water access for a long time started to lose it. And their water access was, you know, intermittent or, you know, when they'd get water for maybe seven days a month, it would be dirty um, and they didn't know if they could drink it. I remember, you know, some of my first time there in some of our research trips, I met um, a woman named Tori who had a baby and, you know, she had a baby shower and her friends gave her all these parenting books and she was sort of ripping through them. And she told me, you know, I was looking for anything in this book that would tell me, you know, where to find 
water for my kid, or if I collect water for my kid, how to figure out if it's safe for them to drink. And if I drink it myself, can my kid drink my breast milk safely? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, you know, that's not ever in a parenting book. And, um, you know, that's how dire things have been in Appalachia and some of these rural mining communities for a long time. So our work started um, in Appalachia and West Virginia in a town called um, Welch in McDowell County. And um, it's been an incredible partnership between us and the public utility district um, and a big engineering company called E.L. Robinson, a really successful kind of public-private partnership um, where, you know, the county leveraging federal dollars um, has been building these large replacement water lines. Um, and then we're doing that last mile work to get the water lines into communities, into meters, into homes, and then replumbing homes, you know, many of which haven't had plumbing, um, you know, for maybe a decade now, um, so that they can use sinks and showers and toilets. Um, and we're working on some future sanitation work there now too, so that people can stop straight piping their sewage right into streams. And um, we, I've just been in sort of the editing booth with some of our creatives, <laughs> like editing together the first client videos. Um, there's this incredible one from this client named Donna who that's like available on our YouTube. I think it's also at AppalachiaWaterProject.org slash Donna. Um, talking about what, what it was like to sort of be able to flush the toilet again and turn on the sink for the first time in a long time. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, talk about like happy impact work, like yeah. some, watching something like that will just like change your whole day. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you like what the reception is by the community. Obviously some individuals are really touched and, and it's powerful, but yeah, what's, what's the overall reception to it? by a community when an organization like yours is coming in and, you know, trying to make a project like this happen? Well, you know, there's so many ways to answer that question. I'm going to do it in a couple. So the first thing I'll say is, um, the first thing I'll say is community is the heart of our work. So our projects are all led by local community members. You know, Emma, who runs the Navajo Water Project, all of her program managers are from the communities where you know, they work. She's from the Navajo Nation herself. The majority of her staff is from there too. The same thing in Appalachia. That project is run by Bob McKinney, who's, you know, a local former mine operator and, you know, electrical technician and plumber and pastor, and he runs a local food bank. And so these, these programs are as much run by the communities that they serve as they are by Dig Deep. So um, our first work is to build that community and that network and that um, team. And so that makes things a lot easier. But I will say that even after all that, you still get a mix of reactions from folks. And, you know, I try to tell our team, like, it doesn't matter what the reaction is. Certainly, we're not looking for gratitude. Like, we're, we're righting a wrong. We're helping someone get access to something that they deserve just by nature of being human beings. You know, they don't owe us any sort of debt of gratitude. Mm. Um, that being said, you know, when the water turns on in someone's house for the first time, sometimes there is a lot of gratitude. Sometimes there's tears of joy or even of sadness, um, you know, thinking about what they've lost. I think sometimes the most powerful moments are just the silent ones. Um, I remember really, really vividly being in uh, the home of a Navajo elder who got running water for the first time in her life. And she was in her late eighties and she turned on the tap and she just stared at it silently for, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds. And then kind of realized that the water was running and reached up and turned the tap off really fast um, and went back to her chair and sat down and that was it. Um, and something about the way she looked at that water and sort of like almost how she was startled out of a kind of reverie to turn it off, realizing how incredible and precious this thing is. Like, 
that's a realization that I wish we'd all have more regularly. Mm, incredible, incredible moments. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is this story of St. Michael's School. Uh, I think this is a real positive one. Um, and again, I love I love hearing this stuff and these solutions, you know, that these things are possible. And the bigger picture is like 2.2 million. Wow, that's overwhelming, right? How can we ever go about tackling that? But you chip away. I think that that's part of what you go, you all are focused on, right? Chipping away. And so just even a story of a school like this is a massive success. So I'd love to love to hear the story. I mean, I'm always happy to talk about St. Michael's, which we call SMAZE. I mean, this is like, you know, one of the favorite products we've ever done at Dig Deep. Um, <clears throat> we heard from a teacher who reached out after seeing a piece on the Navajo Water Project on the news. And she said, you know, I teach at the only special needs school on the Navajo Nation, which is, you know, for those who don't know, the size of West Virginia. So students for, to this special needs school have like severe developmental or medical disabilities. Um, you know, CP, they're on they're on feeding tubes or breathing tubes. Um, they have real cognitive disabilities, but they're, they're coming to the school and living in a boarding style community or being bused in from up to four hours away for class. And the school, you know, for all intents and purposes, didn't have running water. They were at the end of an old water line. And when they would try to turn on the water, it came out, you know, black or brown or stinky. And, you know, when we, when we tested, it was unsafe to drink. It was high in copper. It had some lead in it, it had some arsenic in it. Um, and, you know, the, the tribal utility authority in the, had, had been working on this problem for a long time, but, you know, they're at the whim of the federal government in a lot of ways in terms of like what they can fund. Um, and so, you know, we sort of came in and, and partnered with them to do some water testing and to redo the water line. And then we went, you know, all 20 something buildings on this can and completely replumbed them and put in, um, you know, water filters and, you know, new water bottle stations and new sinks and new showers and new toilets in some places. And, it was just, it was really touching and honestly very uplifting to see, um, I don't know, to see these incredible teachers and students and parents who were so dedicated to the well-being of their community that it didn't matter that they didn't have running water. They were cleaning these trachs and these feeding tubes. They were literally cooking and bathing these students with bottled water. And they were just like, we'll do whatever it takes. And I mean, like, you know, teeny little drinking water bottles. Um and they were like, but you know, it would just, it would just be nice if this could be easier for us. Hmm. Um, and you know, the, the day that project was finished and we got to celebrate with that community, um, you know, there was a, there was a ceremony and, um, there were some native medicine men and women there and, you know, the principal of the school and so many of the families came out and it was probably the best day of my life, oh. <laughs> frankly. Oh man, that's, that's awesome. Um, but again, like so wonderful because that was part of the Navajo water project and it was, you know, indigenous people working with other indigenous people to make this happen. You know, I, I was basically just an attendee and um, I think that's really at the core of our work, our communities, community members serving other people in their communities, Americans helping Americans, indigenous folks helping indigenous folks, like the, the amount of empowerment that you feel and create it's like an engine that drives all sorts of other changes too um yeah it's fun to watch yeah yeah water is so central and fundamental i love that drives those other changes when you have it well george um I'm really glad I got to catch up for this podcast. Thank you for sharing um, some of these success stories, outlining the big challenges overall. Um, 
gives me a lot of optimism to see you all out there doing this type of work. Um, and I do look forward to following up and digging into some of these other specific places. So thank you so much for, uh, for your time. Thank you, Travis. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates.